learn about that today. And we need to do that. Let's dismiss our young people right now for time in the Word. Appreciate Mrs. Slusser working with them today to head to the upper room, young people. And as they do that, let's, let's think about rejoicing. There always is reason to rejoice. It seems like a Thanksgiving message, Pastor, and um, sure is. That's all right. Week early. Next week, who knows whether we'll do that. We're in the book of Philippians, and we're being taught to rejoice. So that's what we want to see and learn about today. So finally, my brethren, again, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm going to stop right there. There's more we're going to look at in the verses and uh, in Scripture. But um, that is the focus today. And let's, um, let's ask God to give us direction and hope and help. Father, please help us to understand your word better this morning. I pray that uh, we would understand the importance of this in our lives. And may we have a heart that rejoices in the, the goodness of God all the time. And may we be people who do rejoice and learn to rejoice as, as Paul did, who, who sang when in prison and, and sang praises to God. Help us to be people who uh, continually have the joy of the Lord ruling in our heart and our lives. And I pray that you'd give us understanding and that we'd have a, a good grasp of that truth today from Philippians chapter 3, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. There's a devotional book. They had a story, a true story, I believe, about this a young girl named Mary. And here's how it went. He said, as we rolled five-year-old Mary into the MRI room, I tried to imagine what she must be feeling. She had suffered a stroke, a five-year-old stroke that left half of her body paralyzed. She had been hospitalized for treatment of a brain tumor shortly before that, had recently lost her father and mother. And we all wondered how Mary would react as she was put into a situation where she was going to have to be completely still for these very important tests. She went into the MRI machine without the slightest protest, and we began the exam. At that time, each imaging sequence required the patient to remain perfectly still for about five minutes. Now, that would be difficult for anyone but a five-year-old. And a five-year-old that, as well, had suffered uh, so much, uh, they thought that it might be a difficult thing. We were taking an image of her head, so any movement of her face, including talking, would result in image distortion. Well, about two minutes into the first sequence, we noticed on the video monitor that Mary's mouth was moving. We even heard a muted voice over the intercom. We halted the exam and gently reminded Mary not to talk. She was smiling and promised not to talk. We reset the machine, started over. Once again, we saw her facial movement and heard her voice faintly. What she was saying wasn't clear. Now, everyone was becoming a little bit uh, impatient with, with a busy schedule that had been put on hold because this was an emergency MRI on Mary, uh, we needed to get back to work and do the things that needed to be done. 
Well, we went back into the room. We slid Mary out of the machine. And once again, she looked at us with her crooked smile. And she wasn't upset in the least. The technologist, perhaps a bit gruffly, said, Mary, you were talking again. And that causes blurry pictures. Mary's smile remained as she replied. I wasn't talking. I was singing. You said no talking. We looked at each other feeling a little bit silly. What were you singing, someone asked. Jesus loves me, came the reply. I always sing Jesus loves me when I'm happy. Everyone in the room was speechless. Happy? How could this little girl be happy? The technologist and I had to leave the room for a moment to regain our composure as tears began to fall. Many times since that day, when feeling stresses, unhappy, dissatisfied with some part of my life, I've thought of Mary and felt both humbled and inspired. Her example made me see rejoicing is a marvelous gift free to anyone. It is. Our text for today in Philippians chapter 3 reminds us of that fact. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's one thing to say, it's another to do. And so in this passage, Paul takes time to explain how these people can learn to do that very thing. I've got to be quite frank with you. I've preached Philippians chapter 3 many times. I preached from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. I preached from Philippians chapter 3 and verses, what, uh, verse 14. I pressed toward the mark. But I don't know whether I've ever seen these verses in light of the truth he was trying to bring out and explain in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. Because these truths that we often preach as separate entities are part of a whole. And they really are teaching us a lesson about rejoicing in the Lord. And I hope you will learn those lessons today. And as we take a little bit different look, because again, as I said, I've preached about, uh, about verse 10, knowing him. I've preached about pressing toward the mark. And those are good messages. And there's some powerful things. And there's so much to be said that you almost want to go to those verses first but you've got to understand them in light of the context. And you've got to understand them in light of what is being taught. And the lesson for today is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And my friends, we learn to do that as God instructs us in this passage. So follow as I continue. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. By the way, I always, every time I get to this verse, as a kid, I used to look at that verse and say, why did they ever tell you to beware of dogs? You know, why did God, I, I guess, well, I got bit a couple times as a young person, so I guess I understood the reason I should beware of dogs, but I never understood the verse. Okay, no one else is like that? All right, I guess I'm the only one. Well, let's go on, <clears throat> since no one else has questions about it. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. 
though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I, might, I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Now, the thought continues, and there's more to be learned, and we may come back and look a little bit more deeply at some of the truths in the latter part of this chapter, the latter part of this chapter. But today, I want to challenge you about rejoicing in the Lord. And I want you to see, first of all, in verse 1, we have the call to joy or the call to rejoice. Notice that it's a concluding remark. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Paul almost reminds me of a preacher who says, in conclusion. And then he preaches for another 45 minutes. You've never had that happen, have you? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, don't, don't look at me that way. I never say in conclusion. I just never let you know we're going to keep going another 45 minutes. But I've heard preachers say that, and I've had them say it before. And then they continue on. This is the last point of my outline. It's like, yeah, okay. I, you know, I could be saying that, and I can make a last point to last a long time. Uh, and that seems to be the situation here. I mean, if you look at Philippians, this is like right about in the middle of the book, right? I mean, there's two more chapters. And, and you got chapters one and two. And, and if you look at it, I mean, overall, it's about almost as much still to come. You say, well, then why did Paul do that? Was he, was he lying, you know? Was he droning on? Well, I'll tell you something. I am really thankful Paul didn't end the book here because he has some great things to teach us. Chapter 4 is a, is a chapter that you, you want to preach on over and over and over. There are so many wonderful truths that are still yet to come. So I'm thankful Paul didn't conclude the book. In fact, I wouldn't have minded him going another 45 minutes because the truths he will share and what is to come is wonderful. But the truth is, it seems like he was indeed intending to end this letter. So understand this. This, this was a letter that was tenderly written to people that he loved, he was concerned about. And so he was coming to the end of the letter. He didn't really have much more to write about. I guess that's what preachers do too. Didn't have much more to write about. So he said, hey, look, I've been talking about joy all along, right? 
I mean, just the first two chapters, he's been talking about how to have joy and how important joy is in the life. And so he's been dealing with that subject already. He's talked about how even in suffering that, that you can rejoice. So he's coming to the conclusion of his book and he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's going to tell you that in the next chapter. But it seems as if here's what happens. He gets caught up in that statement he's just made. And he realizes, I, I got to say some things about this. So he continues to write his letter. And the next 14, 15, 16 verses are a continuation of that thought. And then when he gets to the end of that, it's as if, oh, wow, I need to talk about this too. And I need to hit on this thing. And I need to talk about this. And oh, wow, there's something else that came to mind. So, so in reality, uh, because this was a, a, a a personal, loving letter written from the church, it, he really did intend to end it. But I'm thankful he didn't. Because what he shares in the immediate verses, what he shares later on, is of great value to our Christian lives. And God knew that. And so, so if you want to call it the, the preacher who gets up and says, and in conclusion, and who continues, that's fine with me, but let's learn the truth why is there more? Because there's more for us to learn. And my friends, it reminds me too that this letter really is just a personal heartfelt letter from a guy who wanted them to rejoice in the Lord. From a guy who truly wanted them to understand what that was all about. So it's a concluding remark in this call to joy. But notice it's a command. Paul commands joy. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I'm not giving you an option here. This is what you're supposed to do as a, as a Christian. And I think it's interesting that he would command joy. And you say, well, why is that? Because in conversations I've had with most people in life, and you probably would say the same thing, I found that most people think that, that joy is something out of their reach. It's something they don't have any control over. It's something that they can't determine to have because many times I've heard people say something like, well, you know what, I would, I would like to be happy, but I can't be happy because, and then they'll say, well, this has been going on in my life, or this has happened, or I've had this financial reversal, or I heard this medical news, or this has happened in my life, or this family member said such and such to me. And so people will then give their reasons, and they may want to have joy, or they want, may want to rejoice, but they don't believe it's possible. So it's interesting to me that Paul, in this book, writes and he says, Finally, brethren, hey, look, if I'm going to give you the last thing that I want you to do, I want you just to learn to rejoice and I want you to do it all the time. And, he, and this is a command then. So we have to conclude that joy, rejoicing, is not something that is controlled by circumstances. It's not controlled by pressures. It's not controlled by people. It's controlled by you and what you determine to do. You can rejoice in the Lord. It is a choice of the will. And the one who, if I might remind you, wrote this book and has already talked about joy a number of times was writing this from where? In prison. And, and yet, and by the way, we know what he did when he was in prison. Because in 
Acts chapter 16, we learn that when he was in prison, he prayed and sang praises. So he made a choice. Now, look at the command. It doesn't just say rejoice. It says rejoice in the Lord. And the secret then of rejoicing, regardless of circumstances in life, is if we learn to find, to rejoice in, in God, in the Lord. God, if you would, has joy to give. That no man, that no trouble, that no circumstance, that no situation in life can take from you. In fact, didn't Jesus Christ say that when he was ready to leave this earth? My joy I give unto you, my peace. So there is a God in heaven who has joy and he has it to give. And this is what's encouraging to me. It's our right to have it. If he would say rejoice in the Lord, then he, he says this is something we can have. You know, if you had a desperate want, if you had a desperate need in life and you didn't have any way to meet it, it'd be frustrating, wouldn't it? I, I mean, let's just say, since it seems like a, a number of people have been involved with, with cars, let's just say that, uh, that your car is on its last leg and you have a need of a new one, but there's a slight problem. Well, not slight, money. You don't have the money to get it. And cars are exorbitant. Price-wise, right? Okay, no one knows that? Yeah, I think so. So someone tells you, you need to get a car. You, you don't have to tell me that, I know. You know, yours is in terrible shape. Well, you know that fact. You want to do something about it, but you tell them the truth. I know I need a car. There's no way I can get one. I just don't have the money for it right now. Well, let's say that later the same day, that person calls and says, let's go look at new cars at such and such a lot. Well, you know, you argue with them. I don't have the money. I can't afford to get a car. There's no sense in me looking at cars because there's no way that I can, I can get one. But they won't take no for an answer. So, you know, just being nice, you just say, All right, I'll go. And you look around, you test drive a brand new Lexus. <laughs> and and you're, I mean, you already know that ain't going to happen. Then you get ready to get in your clunker and go home. Uh, and your friend says, let's buy this thing. And you say, you're crazy. I don't have the money for this. I can't get it. I don't have, there's no way. I can't make, I couldn't make one payment over six months for this vehicle. And then they say, I want you to have it. I'm going to buy it for you right now. And you say, Introduce me to my to your friend. Look, Paul tells you he wants you to go to God's rejoicing lot and pick out a vehicle. It's going to be God who provides it, though. It's not you. And yeah, that's a pretty sorry illustration of it. But it's not something that you can afford. It's not something you can get. It's not something you can you can keep. It's something that. God will give you if you're in the right place. And that's what this passage deals with. See, there's a concern. As soon as he makes this statement, and this is why it seems like he continued on, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it's safe. 
He's, he's saying in essence, all right, look, I, I'm going to go over this again because I want you to understand how to have joy. I want you to understand how to rejoice. And, uh, and I'm, I'm willing to talk about this and I'll go over it again and I'll keep going over it again and again. It's not grievous to me to repeat things because you need this and I'm more than willing to help you out. I just want you to know how to have joy. I want you to know how to have this in your life all the time. And so he says, it doesn't bother me to write down these things, even though I've taught on this, and even though we have constant reminders of the importance of it, I want you to know how to have the Lord's joy. So then we got to start with, or maybe we need to look at, the cautions about what endangers then joy. And that's how it goes, starting in verse 2. We have the call to joy, but in verse 2, we find a couple things that happen. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the concision. And now we get into this verse. And uh, he says, first of all, that people can steal your joy. They can. And you need to understand that. Now I'm going to explain verse 2, what it's all about. But don't get lost in the explanation, okay? Because the truth is, it's not vitally important. You understand everything about dogs, evil workers, and the concision. But it is important that you understand the, the truth. So let me go back and let me just take a minute and explain it. What was God saying when he said, beware of dogs? Well, if you understand in that day, dogs were not looked at as pets. They weren't looked at as good pals, as good buddies, as, as people that you, as, as, as animals that you sleep with, care for, and spend more money on than a new vehicle. Or at least some people today. There, there really is an unbelievable love of animals that, uh, that sometimes confuses me a little bit. But they weren't pets at all. It was a, a derogatory. Dogs were not beloved pets. They were scavengers. The story of Lazarus, by the way, when the dogs came and licked his sores, we look at that as like a positive thing. Oh, look, the dogs came and they licked his sores. They made him feel better. No. It was really a, a nasty thing. Dogs were scavengers, they, and, and they did, yeah, it was not a, a good thing. It was not a positive thing that was happening in Lazarus' life. And we know from Scripture that that is, that is true. So what Paul does when he writes about bewaring of dogs is he's referring to false teachers in his day, and he's saying, look, look out for these people, and he calls them dogs. He calls them scavengers. He uses really a very derogatory term, not filthy, but a derogatory term to refer to people who would teach you things that are contrary to the word of God. And he says, look, you need to be aware in life that there are teachers, false teachers, and they're like dogs. They're like scavengers. That They're not out for your good. They don't want your benefit. They don't want to help you in any way. All they're out for, in, in essence, they might be out to lift up themselves. They might be out to make themselves look good. And he says, I want you to know that there are dogs out there you've got to be aware of. People can steal your joy if you listen to them. And so the Jewish false teachers who were promoting the error that salvation comes through observing the law and through circumcision... These people he called dogs. In fact, he goes on and he says, beware of evil workers. They're evil people. They're like scavenger dogs, bad. They're evil workers. And you need to beware of the concision as well. So Paul says, watch out for them because they'll steal your joy in Christ. 
I'll tell you something. Whenever someone comes and tells you you have to be a member of a church or baptized or something else has to be done in order to have or keep your salvation, they're no good dogs. They're rotten. And you shouldn't give them the time of day. God called them evil workers. And this was another term, the concision. The last word is interesting. It means maulers. Say, what do, you, what do you mean by that? It was a play on words with the next, with, uh, with what's going on. We are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. Do you know salvation does not come by physical circumcision? That was the issue that they were dealing with in Paul's day. And many were saying, look, you got to follow the law. And part of the law is circumcision. And you got to have this done. And you know what he said? He, in essence, said in verse 2 that circumcision is, uh, is mauling your body. He actually uses, again, a derogatory term to talk about this. He said, there is absolutely no value in circumcision. It has nothing to do with salvation. It's really a powerful message in verse 2. You've got to watch out because there are people who will come and they will preach things and teach things that are contrary to the word of God and they will steal your joy if you listen to them. My friends, that goes on all the time. Do you know there are Christians, people who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ who go around from church to church and they are confused people and quite honestly, they're miserable people. They don't know what they believe and the reason they don't know what they believe is because they're constantly being taught all sorts of different doctrines and things that are not true to the word of God. So the Mormons come to their door, they let them in, they sit down with the Mormons, they listen to Mormons and they say, oh, that doesn't sound exactly like the thing I've heard at my church, but it's interesting. And then the JWs come to their door and they let the JWs in and start doing a Bible study with them. These people just live life confused. And I'll tell you something, you won't have joy when people are teaching you all sorts of contrary doctrines and contrary doctrines. And you say, well, I wouldn't let those people in my door. Some of you do by watching on TV preachers who don't preach the truth. And I'm telling you something, at least Paul was very clear about this. You need to be aware of those people because they're going to steal your joy. False teachers aren't going to help you at all. Paul sees religious people as the greatest hindrance, at least in this passage, in this portion, to a Christian knowing joy. And he uses no uncertain terms. Beware of dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the concision. They aren't going to help you. So people can steal your joy. Now, second thing that we need to understand is misunderstanding truth can steal joy. You see, it's not really people that steal joy, but it's error. And if you look in verses 2 and 3, that's what he's bringing out. We're the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What was he talking about? Well, he was talking about actually what he wrote about to the church at Rome in, in Romans chapter 2. He said, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He said, look, you're saved. 
not by some outward act of circumcision or by any other outward act. You are saved in heart by believing on Jesus Christ. And that brings salvation. And there is no outward, outward deed. The inward circumcision of the heart that God does when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And my friends, when you have that understanding of truth, it can help you, help you to continue to be joyful. Because I'll tell you something, you're not going to be joyful in life if you don't even know you're saved. If you're battling with, do I know whether I'm saved or not? Oh, well, I don't know if everything in my life is showing, showing up that I'm a Christian right now. Uh, well, they told me I have to do this, or they told me I have to do that, or they told me I have to be involved in this, or I have to do this in order to get to heaven. And look, if you misunderstand truth, it'll steal joy in your life. By the way, if you have confidence in your own flesh, that in what you do and in your own efforts, you're not going to have joy. And he shares that as he starts to talk about having confidence in the flesh. Look at verse 4. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. I... This is an amazing thing. You know, Paul is saying, it's me. I mean, if we're talking about confidence in the flesh, and he's going to tell us in a few verses, I don't have any. But he did. Up until the point when Paul was saved, he had absolute confidence in his flesh. The tribe of the Benjamin. I, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Look at all the things that I've done. Look at all my acts, my deeds. And he believed he was pleasing God. Come on. He stood by and gave consent when Stephen was stoned, and he thought that he was honoring God in doing that very thing. He had confidence in the things that he was doing. He had confidence in his flesh, and that was what he was dependent on, upon to get him to heaven. And one day the Lord came and said, you're kicking against the pricks. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, and you need me. And that very day, Paul received Jesus as his Savior, and no longer did he have confidence in his flesh anymore. You see, you've got to understand that people can steer your joy, misunderstanding of truth can steer your joy, and confidence in your flesh and in what you're doing can steal your joy. And you ought not let it. And you don't have to. And that's what Paul is sharing in these first verses and starting in verse 8 and on through really quite on pretty much to the end of the chapter we stopped early I know he starts to talk about the conduct if you would that produces joy so let me share with you and let's look at these verses and see what what kind of conduct uh, produces or helps to maintain joy now if you listen to people who pervert truth if you lack knowledge of Bible truth, if you have confidence in your own flesh and what you're doing, I'll tell you something, you'll never be happy. You won't. Here's, here's why. You'll never measure up completely. And you always wonder, do I have it? Don't I have it? Have I done enough? Am I doing enough? So-and-so told me this. So-and-so told me that. So, three things. Verse 8, he said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowledge, Bible knowledge, of truth. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So, first thing he said, and be found in him not having my own righteousness. Rest in your faith. 
here's, here's the first big change that took place in Paul's life when he got saved. He stopped resting in his being of the tribe of Benjamin, being religious, circumcised, all sorts of other things, and he just started resting in Jesus Christ. I don't have my own righteousness. You know what's so great about salvation is that I didn't do it. And that's what so, is so frustrating to me as a pastor. I hear, I read about these groups. I see, especially I, one group that really frustrates me is the Church of Christ. Because many of them are people that are interested in Bible truth. They seem to be, they seem to be people that really study the Bible. And yet they confuse so many people about this matter of salvation by teaching, you got to do this. And, and some have a list of six and some have eight things and some have 10 things that you have to do in order to make sure that you're on your way to heaven. And these people are stealing the joy of countless, probably thousands of people who are listening to their false teaching. And Paul said, you know what? I, I'm, I'm found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes by faith. I trusted Jesus and he gave me his righteousness. That's an amazing thing. When God sees me, when I believed on Jesus Christ, when God sees me now, he sees me positionally all the time as absolutely positively righteous. And I'm not. But it's an amazing, amazing truth taught in the Bible. That I was given God's righteousness. All my sins of the past have been washed away. The sins of the future have been cared for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he sees me in my position as a, as a Christian, as one who is absolutely, completely righteous. Otherwise, I couldn't go to heaven. But it wasn't my righteousness. And that's why when people talk about you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to be baptized, you got to be part of the church, you got to do, you got to be involved in, in service, you got to do these different things, they are confusing the issue and they're stealing people and robbing people of joy. Because there's nothing I've done, and there's nothing I can do, and there's nothing I can, I, I can't do anything to keep it. So he said, look, first thing that is so blessed to me is that. I don't have my own righteousness. I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imparted to me when I trusted him. And my friends, the way you can learn to rejoice all the time is when you just rest in faith in Jesus Christ. I'm saved. I know it. Nothing can ever take that. God gave me eternal life as a gift by faith. And nothing I can do can change that. And it's no wonder he could tell them, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. If you listen to false teachers, if you listen to people that talk about all sorts of things that are contrary to the word of God, even though they may sound really good and really religious and seem real spiritual, you're going to be a miserable Christian. But if you'll just first of all rest in this fact, it's not my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which comes through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, let's understand something. It, there's more that God wants from my life, but it has nothing to do with righteousness that God has already given me. And I gotta rest in that. Now you say, well then I should be happy if I know I'm saved. Well, there's more to it. Because he goes on 
And he said, all right, so look, I have this righteousness, which is of God by faith that God has given to me. But there's something else that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. So not only must I rest in my faith, but then he said, seek a greater knowledge or develop a deeper relationship with God. Look, there is a joy that comes when someone can say, I've been saved by faith in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. It's especially blessed when you see someone who gets saved and they start to grasp that truth. They may not understand all of it, but it's kind of like, wow, I am saved. You know what it's, what it's like? Oh, you say, I can't remember that. It's been a long time ago. But it is a wonderful thing when someone comes to the realization, well, I'm a sinner and Christ died for my sin and all I got to do is trust him. And they do. And then God gives them eternal life. And it's like, hey, God saved me. Or I got saved or something like that. And they may not even have all the words straight, but they have a great joy. But I'll tell you something, that joy um, is, is not going to be maintained or it's not going to continue unless you have a desire in your heart to continue on for God. And that's what he shared. He said, look, I, I don't have my own righteousness and I rest in the fact that I've been saved by grace through faith. I'm resting in faith. But that wasn't all. He said, I have a desire to have a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to know him. And friends, there are people who had the joy of their salvation when they first got saved, but they lost it. And one of the reasons they've lost it is not because they lost their salvation, because that's already cared for. But they've lost it because they've stopped having, if you would, a desire in their heart to know God. And when you lose that, you lose joy. When you don't have that desire, I want to know him. Like when you first got saved, it was like everything is new. So just one of the great blessings as just being a, a Christian pastor who's had opportunity in life to lead people to Christ it's just to see them have such great joy at the, at the beginning of their walk, you know? And to see how, how the, the Lord changes their life. And then, you know, like they come to the realization of something that is so small in the Christian life that you think, I've known that for years, you know? But they're like, woo, I learned this new truth today, you know? I, 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 learned, I learned that God loves me. Or, you know, something that's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And it's like everything is exciting. You know why? Because they have a, now a desire. I want to learn more about God. And they start to, and it's like, whew, everything is great. But you know, <clears throat> sadly, they get like a lot of Christians get. After a while, they're not, maybe they don't, they, they kind of peter out a little bit in their, their zeal and their enthusiasm. And they lose that desire to know God. And as they lose that desire, here's the sad thing. They lose their joy. And, and, and really, there are, there are so many places, there are so many churches, there are so many Christians today that are miserable people. And they shouldn't be. God hasn't designed it that way. And what gave Paul, look, 
I, I start, I think after studying this passage, I understand better how he was able to do what he did in Acts chapter 16. That he could pray and sing praises to God after he'd been beaten and thrown in prison. I don't know about you, but I, I come to that passage every time and I'm just amazed that this guy would be singing praises. Because I'm honest, that's not the first thing I'd be thinking about doing. Okay, shoot me. But it's, it's not. And, and I, 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 as studying this passage, I've just been reminded, maybe it's because I don't have that passion I need to have. To know God. To know him intimately. To know him deeply, personally. Seems like a lot of Christians just don't have that today. It's like I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. That's that's what new evangelicalism is. You know, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. Woo! Leave me alone. Don't tell me anything about my life. I'm happy the way I am. And 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 actually, in some cases, it's just a, a false feeling-oriented Christianity rather than a deep-seated joy that reigns within their heart because they are people who have not, who understand they've been saved by faith, but they're people who have this deep desire within them to know God. And I may know him. And if that is my desire, and that is the drive of my life, and I want to know him and have that deep personal relationship, and the truth is joy can reign within no matter what's going on, even if I've been beaten and thrown in a prison cell. Rest in your faith. Seek a greater knowledge, a deep personal relationship with him. I read about a guy this past week, and it was challenging, and, it, and, uh, and I'm still pondering this one. His name was Frank Laubach. He lived back in the 1900s. And he wrote about his personal experience in knowing God. And wrote about how in his personal experiment of moment-by-moment submission to the will of God, that the fine texture of his work and life experience was totally transformed. And here's a guy who, it was around the 1930s, made a decision that he wanted to, he wanted to think about Jesus Christ at the beginning of every minute. And he set out to do that. So then each day, he just, if you would, taught himself that every minute he was going to just take a moment, think about Jesus Christ. And it absolutely, totally transformed his life. And here's what he wrote. After four weeks, he said, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I have never felt it this way before. I I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. And it's such a wonderful thing. It's been challenging to think about that. Do I really want to know God? And maybe one of the reasons I don't always have 
heart of rejoicing is because I lose sight of knowing God and having a passion for Him. In verses 11 through the end of the chapter, but I think it culminates in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He was resting in his faith. He sought a greater, deeper knowledge of God that just drove him to, to learn about God and to, to love God with all his heart. And that led him to put aside everything else, to run the, run the race. And here we go again this past week. To run the race for God. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This one who gave himself for me and gave me his righteousness, the one that is giving me joy now as I seek to know him better, this one is the one I want to just live for and make my life count for, and I'm pressing toward the mark. And every moment of my life is just focused on being more like Jesus Christ. I want to win the race. I want to run the race well. I want, to, I want to come to the end of that race because, because I am going, I'm going to be perfect in that place. I want to run the race and become more like that on a daily basis. That's where I'm living. That's what my focus is all about. And that is why, that's why Paul could say, in the midst of, in jail, that, that is why he could tell these believers, finally, brethren, Rejoice in the Lord. I'm commanding you to do this because you can. But it isn't just going to happen. And here's the truth. Some of, us won't, some of us won't do what we need to to rejoice in the Lord. Because it really does take a lot. i got to put aside the wrong teachers. i got to only listen to what God has said in his word. i got to make him the absolute authority in my life. i got to come to the place where I understand I'm not doing anything to win God. I was saved by faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Now, I just want to know him. And I'm going to run the race and become more like Jesus Christ every day. And when I do that, then I will rejoice in the Lord. Can't help but do it. Can't help but do it. Can't help but do it. But it depends on our choice whether we will seek him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.